Well, if you join me in Matthew chapter 25. Because of the length of the passage, I'll just take it a bit at a time as we go through. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the perfection of it and for the holiness of it. We need to hear these words. And I ask that we would hear them this morning and contemplate them with the same kind of wonder and amazement and fear that your disciples, Jesus, must have felt. They asked the question that prompted these two chapters. It was their curiosity raised up by your spirit. And today when when we look at our world and we look at the circumstances of life and our lives and the the chaos in our time and we wonder when you're coming, we need to be aware of what that means. And you tell us in the words before us today. Give us a hunger to hear and believe and obey your word. For your glory and for our eternal good. And we thank you in your precious name, Jesus. Thank you. Amen. Verse 31 says, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. This is the moment that we've been waiting for. This is the moment the church has waited for for 2,000 years. This is the moment that the, the prophets were waiting for A thousand years before that, Moses anticipated it. This is the promise made to Eve, that the the seed of the woman would crush, utterly destroy the, the seed of the devil and destroy all of his works. This is when Jesus does this. Earlier in chapter 24, in the, uh, as Jesus gets into the upper, not the upper room discourse, the Olivet discourse before us, he compares the end of time with, with pregnancy, and he talks about just the beginnings of birth pangs, the wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and things like that. Well, this is the moment of birth. This is when the cord is cut. This is when the fullness is there. Hebrews 9.28 says that Jesus will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. That is, when Jesus returns, it won't be to die for sinners. He's not going to return in humility. He is not going to come empty of his glory. Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3, describes him in his first advent as having no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should desire him. Calls him a man despised and forsaken, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Not in his second coming. When Jesus returns, it will be in complete, utter glory. He's going to put an end to all rebellion. He's going to inaugurate the eternal state. He will be accompanied by every angel in heaven. 
And Revelation 19 says, by every resurrected saint, the armies of heaven will be with him. He will take his glorious throne. Another way to, to read that would be his throne of glory. I don't think the glorious throne of the Lord is going to be a chair. I think it is going to be his glory manifested. He's not coming to a manger this time. He's not coming in the weakness and frailty of a newborn. Revelation 4 and 5 uh, is a picture of the worship that takes place in heaven. From, certainly from John's time and, until the events of Revelation, and I think eternally in chapter 5, it says that the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God, is worthy of all power, glory, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, blessing and might he's worthy of those things when he returns he comes with them in his possession you could take any one of those when he comes it's with the fullness of power it's with the fullness of glory it's in full possession of every rich thing of every piece of wealth it is in absolute wisdom absolute strength the glory of honor the riches of every blessing of god and the might of god That's our Lord coming back. Upon his return, his very first act will be to separate his people, the righteous, from the wicked. Verses 32 and 33. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one, uh, one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, this passage is often called the parable of the sheep and the goats. It is not a parable. It is not about sheep and goats. This is the first and last time he mentions sheep and goats in the parable. The other parables, he continues that thought until the parable is over. He doesn't do that here. This is not a parable that we then need to read into and interpret. He's simply using that as a a brief metaphor to describe the separation of the righteous from the wicked. And I want you to notice that. He doesn't separate the wicked from the righteous. He separates the righteous from the wicked. The elect from the reprobate. The children of God from the children of wrath. The normal state of mankind is rebellion and sin. That's what we are born into. That's what we are conceived into. We are all children of wrath by natural birth. Condemnation is due to our nature of sin and our sinful actions. The condemnation of the final judgment, of eternal judgment, requires no change at all from our nature at birth. How someone is conceived, if it doesn't change, ends up in eternal judgment in hell. No change has to take place. No one is born innocent. No one's born clean. No one is born free of that burden. We are perfectly suited for judgment at the moment of conception. Unchanged humanity is condemned humanity. Jesus makes this clear in John 3.18. God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Why didn't he send him into the world to condemn the world? Because the world was already condemned. He didn't need to come to condemn. He needed to come to save. There doesn't need to be a change for somebody to be condemned. There has to be a change for them to be saved. Salvation requires the greatest possible 
transformation, the greatest miracle, the conversion of the nature of human beings. You think it's impressive that Jesus changed water to wine. He changes sinners to saints. He changes wicked people into righteous people. Not not by wrapping them in a different coat, although for the time being we're dressed in the righteousness of Christ. He does this by transforming our hearts. The New Covenant talks about him taking out our heart of stone, our dead heart, and giving us a heart of flesh, not sinful flesh, but warm, responsive flesh to him. It talks about him giving us a living spirit because our spirits are dead to God. Our minds are being renewed. Whatever sin remains within us, I believe, remains within our physical bodies. It remains within our physical flesh. And that's one of the reasons that our minds have to be renewed. You have a new spirit, you have a new heart. But you don't yet have a completely new mind. Why? Because somehow being both physical and immaterial, being body and soul, some would say body, soul, spirit, that could be, but soul and spirit often overlap in the scriptures. So body and soul at the, le- at the very least. Somehow the mind, which has to do with the soul, is affected by the brain, which has to do with the body. And since our bodies remain impacted by sin... The thinking that we do with our physical brain that's exercised by our soul in our mind has sinful tendencies to it. So we need to be focused on renewing and and the, the soul, in a sense, mastering the flesh. We must be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christians are only children of God by adoption through faith in in Jesus. The Father elected us. The Son died for us. The Spirit must convert and transform us. So 2 Corinthians 5.17 then says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Not renewed, but new. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. That's so clear. When, when Yahweh finished the initial creation of things on the sixth day, what did he do? He pronounced it very good. Now, it didn't stay very good, right? Adam and Eve sinned, death entered the world, sin entered the world and death through sin, and were marred by that. But he pronounced it on the sixth day very good. Do you think your new creation in Christ is anything less than very good? Do you think that being a Christian is just a matter of deciding to follow different principles or adopting a different mindset. Several years ago, for personal reasons, I re-registered as an independent. Do you think being Christian is like being born a Republican and then re-registering? It requires new birth. It requires a miraculous act of God. I'm a cessationist. I believe that the apostolic gifts exercised by Jesus and the apostles are not functioning in the church today. And there are people who would say, oh, you don't believe in the miraculous. Oh, I believe in the miraculous that is miraculous beyond anything the apostles ever did. And frankly, beyond what Jesus did during his earthly ministry. I believe that a goat 
can be changed into a sheep. I believe that a sinner can be changed into a child of God. The Lord is going to separate out his people from the mass of wicked humanity. Now, he might do that one at a time. Um, if, if you saw in the news a few days ago, we just passed the 8 billion mark. There are 8 billion people alive right now. Perhaps 15 or 20 billion have lived throughout the whole of human history, perhaps more. Jesus might go through them one by one. That would take some time, but what does time matter when eternity is stretched out before you? He's coming with all of the holy angels in heaven. I think he empties heaven out. I don't think that there's a holy angel left in heaven when Jesus comes. All the angels are going to come with him, verse 31 says. So maybe he'll assign the angels to that task. He'll just divide up humanity into groups and the angels will do it. Maybe Jesus will just speak a word and it will be doesn't matter he's going to separate it all out what we do know is that he won't have to first determine who goes in what spot he knows now when he comes it is going to be for the sake of dealing with the the righteous and dealing with the wicked and from verse 34 to verse 45, he does this, and there's a number of stages and conversations that take place. I think it would be best for us to do a little bit of jumping back and forth to compare uh, apples to apples. So beginning with reward and punishment. In verse 34, Jesus says to the righteous, then, those then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, Inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And in verse 41, he says to the wicked, he will say to those also on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Let's compare these. To the righteous on his right, Jesus says, Come, come. To the wicked, he says, Go. To the righteous, he calls the righteous those who are blessed of the Father. Not blessed by, necessarily, blessed of. There's something inherent there. But the wicked are those who have been accursed by the Father. The righteous inherits the kingdom, which, which indicates some kind of a possession. An inheritance is some kind of a possession. There, there's at least three kinds of possession. This is my Bible. I can do anything that I want with it. I can close it. I can open it. I can throw it. I can keep it. I can set it down. I can put it in a case. I can tear pages out of it. It's mine. Linda's my wife. I, I can't keep and throw her away and tear pages out of her. And mine is, possession there is mine is a different sense. And America is my country. But I don't own it. I don't possess it. If anything, it owns me. And that possession, that mine is, is one of belonging. We might as well talk about family and things like that. So when the, the, the righteous inherit the kingdom, it's not as an object they can hold or own. And it, it's not simply as a relationship. It's as, it's as a belonging. We inherit the kingdom means we go home. We go home. 
in a way that we've never been home. But the wicked don't go home. They don't inherit eternal fire. They're only cast into it. They don't even belong there in a sense of relationship. They're foreigners there. In fact, the next point makes that. The righteous that the kingdom inherit was prepared for them. Think about that. The kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That means that when God said, in the, or when the scripture says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, your place in the kingdom had already been established. It was already done. You got a name card at your place at the marriage supper. You, you've got a door somewhere in my father's house or many mansions or many rooms. However we translate it, you have an address and you have since creation. But the eternal fire into which the wicked cast was prepared for the devil and his angels. See, I'm a Calvinist. I'm a Calvinist. But I don't believe that election works the same way. I don't believe that God created humanity saying, I'm creating those to be fodder for hell. I do believe he created his people for heaven. But the wicked go there because of their own will and because of their own nature. These are all perfect opposites. Come, go, blessed, accursed, kingdom of God and eternal fire, prepared for you, prepared for the devil and his angels. I said last week, the eternal state is, is a matter of extremes. There is no light in hell. There is no darkness with Christ. It's at all extremes. Jesus goes on to speak about their relative righteousness and wickedness. But he does this in a very interesting, focused way. Uh, notice the pronouns he uses. Verses 35 and 36. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. He continues that when he condemns the wicked in verses 42 and 43. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. <coughs> Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Oh. <coughs> He's not speaking of good works in general. He's speaking of good works that they should have shown him. He should have been the object of their affections. He should have been the object of their service. Now, this confuses both sides. They're, they're kind of equally confused. The righteous express their confusion in verses 37 to 39. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? Bless you, my brother. When did we see you hungry and feed you? 
or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Then the wicked, verse 44, then they themselves also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? There seems to be, it's, it, it's subtle it seems, but it seems that there's a genuine difference between these two. Jesus says to the righteous, you served me in my need. And the righteous say, Lord, we don't know how we did that. We've, we've, we don't ever remember seeing you in need. Jesus says to the wicked, you ignored me in my need. And the wicked say, we never saw you in need, and if we had, we would not have ignored you. There's a difference. Both sides need an explanation. And Jesus gives it to them. In verse 40, he speaks to the righteous. The king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And to the wicked, he says, then he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, my brothers is the, the context, you did not do it to me. To the extent, some Bibles say, in as much as, has to do with, with scope. It has to do with kind of an equality of treatment. He's not talking about if, if we bless one of his brothers, he gets a little bit of that. Everything we do for one another, we do for him. To that extent, that's his point. Now, what does Jesus mean by my brothers? That's an important phrase in here. He's speaking of his people, those who have been saved by grace through faith. Hebrews 2.11 says, for both he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are being sanctified, that's Christians, are all of one, or all of one Father. And therefore, for which reason, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. When a sinner is saved by grace and born again and adopted into the family of God, Jesus becomes their brother. He is the only begotten Son of God, but God has many adopted sons and daughters. The words brother and son, by the way, are used here because in the ancient Jewish world, only sons had a legal claim to an inheritance. Daughters had no legal right. The father is not demeaning women. Jesus is not demeaning women by, by calling them brothers here. He's elevating them. As Peter seems to, to grab men by the shirt collar and shake them, and say, live with your wives in an understanding way as weaker vessels, because they are co-heirs. They're not substandard. They are co-heirs, equal heirs with you. So to be saved is to be placed in Christ, joined with him in his death and resurrection, and to share with him in his inheritance. And the identification that he makes with us is not just a spiritual or, or legal acknowledgement. It's personal. Christ's relationship with his bride, the church, is not a marriage of convenience. 
There's love and affection and passion there. The Lord takes our relationship with him very personally. And what happens to us very personally. So Saul, the, the Pharisee, had been persecuting churches, uh, Christians rather, in and around Jerusalem. And he gets permission to take it on the road. He goes off to Damascus to persecute Christians there. Jesus confronts him just outside the city and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? No, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Jesus doesn't say, why are you persecuting my people? Who are you? Well, I'm the Lord of those people. Jesus says, what you do to them, you're doing to me. And don't you know that you'll answer for, that, for it as though you had done it to me? Every insult thrown at a Christian is thrown at the Lord Jesus. Every attack on a Christian is an attack on Christ. Those who hold Christians in contempt hold Jesus in contempt. There's a bumper sticker I've seen over the years that says, Lord, save me from your people. That's the same as saying, Lord, save me from yourself. There are people, and I know people, I can see their faces today, who say, I love the Lord, I've got no use for the church. Jesus says, hmm, hmm, doesn't work. That doesn't work. We're all one. So Jesus wasn't being poetic when he says, at the end of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, I am with you. He wasn't exaggerating when he says in Luke, the one who listens to you listens to me. The one who rejects you rejects me. Or in John, when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives anyone I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. I love that he says, he who receives anyone I send receives me. He doesn't say, he who receives the apostles receives me. I mean, you know, old Barabbas, he can go. He can go. Old Benjamin, he can go, but that's not the same as Jesus. But Peter, you better receive Peter. You better receive John. And Andrew, you better let Matthias in, you know, just in case. The least of these, my brethren, the least of these, you received the least of them. You've received him. But here's the thing. Jesus never extends that to every human being. He only identifies that way with his children, with his brothers and sisters. Those who have been saved by his blood, transformed by the Spirit, joined with him. It's not wrong to take care of unbelievers in their need. Not at all. But there's a principle laid out for us in Galatians 6. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those of the household of faith. In practical terms, that means if you have an unbeliever in front of you and a believer in front of you and they have the same need and you can meet both needs, go for it. By all means, go for it. But if you have an unbeliever before you in need and a believer before you in need and you can only meet the believer's need, meet the believer's need. That's what this says. 
prefer your family in Christ because you must prefer Christ. You must prefer Christ. Romans 12, 13 commands us to contribute to the needs of the saint. saints. 2 John commands us not to receive false Christians or false teachers. Don't receive them. Don't give them the welcome of a brother or sister in Christ. He doesn't say, when they come through your town, throw rocks at them, chase them out, tar and feather them, run them out of town on a rail. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, don't be kind. He doesn't say, don't give them the gospel, certainly. He simply says, don't welcome them as family. But in 3 John, he commands us to show hospitality to genuine believers and faithful teachers. Some, some in doing so, have welcomed angels unaware. But angels unaware don't come with curses and rebellion and violence and hate and unbelief. They come trusting Christ. They come believing in Jesus. So Jesus is not rewarding the righteous here for their good works. It's important that we know that. He's not saying, because you've done all of these things, you're righteous and you can come into heaven. He's saying, because you're righteous, you've done these things. And that's the sign of your relationship with me. So that the salvation that was placed in you at whatever moment the Lord was pleased to regenerate you worked its way out in your life and became evident more and more and more. It's never fully evident. It's never perfectly evident. Please don't start looking at your life and looking at somebody else's life and say, but I'm not like her. I'm not like him. Don't do that. Don't do that. It's never fully evident. It's never perfectly evident, but it becomes clearer over time. And by the same token, Jesus doesn't say that the wicked failed to do good to everyone. He's saying that they failed to acknowledge him when they failed to acknowledge his people. When they failed to care for his people, they showed contempt for Jesus himself. In verse 46, the dust settles. And these, the wicked, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's think about the word eternal. It's, it's so hard for us to begin to grasp. It, it, it is something that will never cease, that will never fade. Eternal life and eternal punishment both describe never-ending conditions. Those cast into eternal punishment, into hell, will never escape. It's eternal. They will experience no relief. It's eternal. It will never fade. It's eternal. They'll never get used to it. We get used to so much in this life. We get, so much, we get used to our pains and our aches and our, and our inabilities and our disabilities. We get used to those things. First thing I do when I roll out of bed in the morning is reach for my glasses. I'm just used to it. I'm just used to it. People in hell will never get used to it. Now, is hell a literal place? When Jesus talks about the wicked being cast into eternal fire, is he, is he being literal or is he using a figure of speech? 
Well, think about this. If it's a figure of speech, then hell is so utterly awful that the only way to describe it is as the bowl, as the caldera of an active volcano. Biblical figures of speech never exaggerate what they describe. Biblical figures of speech always point to something more intense than the figure of speech itself. Jesus is called the Lamb of God. He's not a little sheep. He never lived in a pasture. There's there's, There's a wealth of revelation behind that phrase. Lamb of God is a small little figure of speech that expands tremendously as we unpack it. So if the descriptions of hell in scripture are figures of speech, if they're metaphorical, it means no one in hell will say, well, hey, this isn't as bad as they said it would be. They'll say, oh, I wish it were only fire and brimstone. I wish it were only what they had described. That's the bad news. But there's wonderful news. There's fantastic news. The righteous go into eternal life. That life is something that we will never escape as though we would ever want to. It's something that we will never experiencing a a diminishment of. We will never get used to it. We will never get used to the wonder and the joy and the privilege of eternal life. What's it going to be like? It'll be a physical existence. We're not going to spend eternity in heaven as disembodied spirits. We're going to spend eternity on a new earth as resurrected men and women, physical bodies. Largely recognizable when Jesus appeared after his resurrection, he didn't have to reintroduce himself or have a little name tag. They knew who he was. There will be no death, only life. There will be no grief, only joy. There will be no crying or pain, only rejoicing and every godly pleasure. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb of God will always be present. It will be so perfectly illuminated by the light of God shining through the Lamb that there will be no need for the sun or moon. And by that way, that means it's going to be a miserable place for photographers. Because photographers love early morning light. They love the golden hour when the sun's not quite above the horizon, but getting close. And the worst time for doing photography is noon. Sun's straight up, all this brilliant, harsh light. Well, there's no shadows in eternity. Photographers, they'll, they'll find something to do. They'll find something to do. It will only contain that which is glorious. It will be unchangingly holy, right, and good. By the way, all of these cross-references are in your notes. There's a bunch of them. The very water of eternity will be life. The very food of eternity will be life. The throne of God and of Jesus will be there. We will see his face. Eternity will be a place of perfect rest, but it would also be a place of physical activity, such as eating and drinking. It will be a place of music. It will be a place of joyful, fruitful service. 
and it will unfold before us for all eternity. God is outside of time. Time is meaningless to God. God is. He doesn't learn. He doesn't grow. God is. There is nothing that he experiences where he could measure time. So the beauty of that is, is from the moment he decreed to make you his child, he had already known you for eternity to come as his child. You and I are trapped in time. We, we just have to go down that line and we get the same amount of time. However we want to define it, seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, we, we all get that same process of time. So in eternity to come, for God, it is simply a state of being. For us, it's a constant line. The angels long to look into things. They're perfect. They're in heaven. There are things that they don't know that they had to learn. There's no reason to think that when the moment we arrive in heaven, we will know everything that there is to know. God delights to reveal his glory and his majesty to his people. Eternity is going to be the process, I think, of God revealing himself and his wonders to us. That we may enjoy them and that we may see them and worship and glorify him for them. Let's consider what final judgment means to us. If you're not a Christian, then the final judgment is going to be completely terrifying and end in the worst possible way for you. There's no other way to put it. As the book of Hebrews says, we live once, die once, and then we face the judgment of God. This romantic idea that in, on the day of judgment, God is going to weigh our good and bad deeds on some kind of a scale and then decide where we go is false. We are born as children of wrath. As I said earlier, God's condemnation of the, of the wicked has already been determined. That final judgment is not a, a, a trial for guilt, but a sentencing hearing. I say this frequently doing jail ministry, and it's interesting how those guys get that idea. Guilt has been established, now I have to be sentenced. If I could know every heart and have the power to change every heart specifically to trust in Christ, I would. I think you would too. As it is, all we have, as though it's all we have, is the gospel. Now the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Our job is to proclaim and to speak it. And then to trust God to do what he will to, to glorify his name. <clears throat> we need to plead with those who don't know Christ to the best of our ability, out of respect for them, with nothing demeaning. Uh, many of us are, are beyond the age of child raising, and now we're, perhaps we're raising grandchildren, but others don't have children yet. Others have children. You must not assume your children are Christians just because they're your children. You have to evangelize them. You have to do that. If you're a Christian, then you don't have to fear the judgment of God. And in fact, I'll say this. There's a moral you must not fear. You ought not fear it. And you must not fear his judgment. Now, we do 
right? We're uneasy about it at times, but let's acknowledge that that's not Christ in us. That's our flesh being uneasy. Jesus bore the wrath of God against every person who would believe in him. He said it was finished. He promises never to cast out any person the Father gives him. No one has the power to pluck us from the hand of God, not even Satan. Now, all of us can look in our hearts and find sin. We could just take 60 seconds of silence. And even the young ones can start looking at their hearts and just say, yeah, that's okay. That's, I'm, I'm just, we're going to just leave that. And we do that because it's sin. We do that because we found something unsavory and insulting to God. But Christian, every single one of those sins, no matter how many of them there are, have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. God does not judge you by your memories. He judges you by his, and he remembers that Christ died for you. He remembers that his blood was shed for you, and he doesn't remember your sins anymore. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has removed our transgressions from us. Psalm 103, 12. East and west are weird. North and south is kind of makes sense. East and west is weird. You can only go north so far before you're going south again. But you can go east until Jesus comes. And it will never become west. If God said, I have separated your sins from you as far as north is from south, there's some risk you'll run into them. But east and west is a straight line. And it's an, inf- it's a, it's an infinite line. And he has separated your sins from you by that distance. You remember them. I remember them, but we remember that we are not judged by our memory, but by God's grace. As far as our lives in Christ go, we have peace with God. We should never fear his judgment. We should live in peace and live in joy. But here's our trouble. We know that because of the righteousness of God and the truth of his word, we should fear for those who don't know him. And many of them are doing things that are unhealthy and bad. Some drink, some use drugs, they're living in sinful relationships. Some are focused on work or money or possessions or having a good time. People do all kinds of things. But there's something worse than a hangover or a bad marriage. And we remember that hell is just over the horizon for those who don't know Christ. And that's worse than anything. And here's the thing, when they get there, all the things that they've used here to forget and to distract themselves won't exist. No drugs, no alcohol, no sex, no power, no money, no stores, no internet. Nothing to distract them. We know that. We also know that there is something infinitely more fantastic and wonderful than any pleasure or joy that life offers. We know that there is hope in Christ and there's salvation in Christ. And we know the way between the two. We know that the way between the two is simply turning on our sins away from our sins and looking to Christ 
and his cross and calling on his name and he promises to save. What people want is give me a job to do, give me a task, give me, give me a law, give me something to obey, give me something to do, give me something to earn. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Have you ever thought about this? Because the wages of sin is death, God would be wrong if he didn't punish the wicked. Because when he does that, he's simply paying them what they earned. He's giving them literally what they deserved. You worked for this. It would be wrong to withhold it. I don't want it, but that's what you've worked for. Would you like what you've worked for? Or would you like the free gift? And we know the free gift, and we want them to take the free gift. If they will turn from their sin and look to Jesus, he'll save them. And we never forget that. We can't know the will of God for any person in particular, but we know his will for us. We're to speak as we have opportunity. And we're to pray always. You know, the, the apostle doesn't say speak without ceasing. He doesn't say evangelize without ceasing. He says pray without ceasing. Father, we thank you that Jesus' blood was shed for us. There is a, a solid line of the strongest steel running through this passage that chills us because of the awfulness of judgment. And yet there is the promise of eternal hope and joy and gladness in these verses, and that thrills us. <coughs> we need your help. <coughs> we need your help to embrace as much of the joy of your promise as we possibly can today without losing a sense of the weight of the judgment that is faced by people we know and love. And at the same time, Lord, while we face the weight of the judgment that is coming upon people that we know and love, we must not lose our joy in you. It's hard for us to do two things at one time. It's hard for us to feel two things at one time, but we, we really need to. We need your help. That there would be a space in our hearts that grieves over those who don't know you and who reject you. Even while there is a, a, a much, much larger space in our heart that rejoices in our salvation and the salvation of all that you have given life to. And we ask that you would help us. We believe that you will. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' precious name.